Good evening, Trinity. It's a pleasure to be here with you this evening. It's a privilege to be able to bring you God's Word tonight. Um, If you would, turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Corinthians. Uh, We'll be looking at chapter 1, verses 26 through 31, talking about boasting in Christ. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at 26 through 31 together. Before I read the text for us, let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity, this Lord's Day evening, to come and worship you again as your people. Father, we know that we only come by the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, that of our own accord we have nothing to offer you in ourselves, Lord God. Lord, we pray that as we hear your word read and preached, that by your Holy Spirit you would illumine our hearts and minds to receive it, that it would sink deeply into our souls, and we would apply it in our Christian lives as we leave here this evening. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's read the word here, and this is God's very word. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one boast, who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen. For his perfect word. As we think about this passage, I want to begin by asking you a question. And that's, what do you take pride in? What do you take pride in? What accomplishments? What people? What events in your life? What degrees on the wall? Institutions? Even sports teams make you glow with satisfaction? No. When you're chewing that over in your minds, I'll ask you a second question, a related question. What if all or any of these were to let you down? What would you do? That prized spouse or child screws up. That university diploma on your wall, the college goes under. That institution or employer, even sports organization that you cherish falls into scandal. Now what? Is it time to panic? Well, Christian, Christian, you must remember your calling in Christ, in Christ Jesus, so that when you boast, you boast in the Lord, in the Lord alone. This is always timely for us as God's people because we live in a world that would proclaim itself as wise and powerful, that sets itself up as a counterfeit against God and His anointed Christ. And so if we're going to cry out together with one voice, as one people, let us boast in the Lord. I want us to 
look at this passage in three parts this evening to, to understand how we do that through Christ. First, I want us to look at our calling and our Christian struggle in this world. Second, I want us to see God's purpose for the struggle that we face in this world between godly boasting and worldly boasting. And last, we'll look at how we remember who we are in Christ to boast rightly as God's people, as Christians and not as the world does. Before I get into that, though, I want to take a look at some background so we're familiar with what we're looking at in the context of this passage. The the beauty of these letters of the Corinthian church, even though they are written 2,000 years ago, we know is that many uh, people in this city were very similar to us in their own context. See, this city was an up-and-coming Roman colony in Greece. It was on the verge of great success. It was at the crossroads of east and west. It was at the center of trade. It had ambitious people coming and going at all times, full of new money and new ideas. A mix of Roman ex-soldiers, Jews, Greeks, even ex-slaves, all scratching, clawing their way to the top to get more, to be more, and to accomplish all that they could in this life. And here you have Greek philosophers and ambitious speakers running around, sharing their insights with the people of their day. You might compare them to the motivational speakers of our own time. They're always selling strategies to get more wisdom, to get more social power, to get more influence over people in your lives. The city, Corinth, It was a place of go, 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 buy more, sell more, do more, be more. Now, if your blood pressure is starting to rise a little bit, like mine, when you think this through, you'll realize there really are no new temptations under the sun for God's people. This letter is not just for the Corinthian church over 2,000 years ago, but this letter is for you American Christian, Western Christian today, sitting in the pew in 2022. God's Word is His Word yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. We rejoice in this as God's people. But having all that in mind, all this background of why this letter is applicable to you as well, it's no surprise that Christians in this and cosmopolitan culture were heavily divided on the important questions and the important ideas of their day. And in chapter 1, the Apostle Paul, he addressed different cults of personality that were popping up in the Corinthian church. He was addressing the words of eloquent wisdom, as he puts it in verse 17, that seem so strong to men on the outside, but in reality they're foolish to God. The Jews, he says, demand special signs. The Greeks want special displays of worldly wisdom. But Christ and Christ alone is the power and the wisdom of God. He tells the Corinthian church in verse 24, to those who are called. To those who are called. This is where we'll pick up together in verse 26. In that first point, I want us to consider to understand our calling. To understand its content. Verse 26, he says, For consider or look to your calling, brothers. Note the strong language here. This is a command. 
It's a command. Christians, look outside yourselves. Look beyond your circumstances in this world. Look to God and His objective promises to you, believer in Christ Jesus. On the other hand, the alternative is to consider that you will not last by considering your own resources. Have you not learned this by now, Christians, as you come week by week to God's people as tired, as broken, as often guilt-ridden with sins, striving after more and more and more in this world and never feeling satisfaction with what you get? Often we're seeking to be wise, we're seeking to be strong and rich in worldly terms. We need to look to Christ, though, in His promises. Verse 26 fronts this right away for us as we get into the passage. Now, instead of seeking to get more in this world, let's admit instead that, as the Apostle says, that not many of you, believers, were what? You were not wise according to worldly standards. You were not powerful. You weren't born to the greatest families of our day. And I will give a caveat here. It's not as if the Apostle is saying that to be a Christian is a prerequisite. You know, you can't be born to a noble family in the world or you can't have worldly wealth. The point here is that Paul wants to humble the Corinthian church and God by his word wants to humble us to realize that we don't bring anything to the table no matter how much the world may praise it. See, Corinth and their church was full of ordinary Poor, insecure, often Christians desperate for social standing, desperate for recognition, desperate for greater financial security, a lasting legacy. But the problem was that in the world's eyes, they were uneducated bumpkins. They were peons in their workplaces. They were born to no-name families. Today, our churches are full of ordinary, sometimes poor And insecure Christians like you, like me, who are often desperate for social standing, for recognition, to get a seat at the table, to have greater financial security and a legacy that we can pass on. Only problem is, in the world's eyes, you're backwards fools who believe in a fairy tale. You're under gag order at work often from even uttering Jesus' name. You're born again into a church family that the world despises right out of the gate. Some of us, some of you might be feeling pressure, might be losing social privileges, risking financial security for your faith. Perhaps you're worried about how you'll last for tomorrow. Now feeling these concerns, feeling the weight of the world around you pressing in, I ask again, will you rely on your own wisdom? Will you rely on your own wealth, your own strength? No. Or will you turn to the wisdom of the cross, of Jesus Christ, this precious cross that is foolish to those who are perishing, but to you believers who believe in Christ, it is the power of God unto salvation. That's why the apostle says here to consider your calling even as you walk through these various valleys that I described, that press in on you, God chose you, Christian, 
not due to any merit of your own. You are nothing in this world. He makes that very clear. No, but He chose you for His own glory and for His own purposes. And that's what I want us to consider here in the second part of the passage. God's purposes for our calling. God's purposes for choosing a bunch of nobodies like us. Why does He do it? I think sometimes we can overthink questions like this. I think it's helpful to think of God's ways of doing things in the Old Testament. After all, the Apostle is standing on that foundation as he writes this letter to the Corinthian church. And how did God choose people in the Old Testament? And what does he say to them about why he chose them? Think about Israel. He often tells them he chose them why, not due to anything in themselves. They didn't have anything special in themselves, but because of his great love for them. His great love for them. And ask yourself, thinking about those ragtag people wandering in the wilderness, wouldn't the Egyptians, surely, surely the Egyptians would have made a better choice for God's chosen people. They were wise thinkers. They had magicians and fortune tellers who could look into the future. They were strong in military might. They had chariots and spears and bows and swords. Surely they were a perfect fit for a powerful God. Is this the story? No, and yet God instead was pleased to crush them, wasn't he? As a display of his great power for his people. Something similar is happening here in verse 27. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Astonishing, really. And there's a phrase I heard a lot when playing sports as a kid growing up. Often we were matched against opponents who were far bigger than us, uh, far taller, far stronger. You can imagine, and oftentimes we would hear from our coaches, don't worry, because the bigger they are, the harder they fall. It was meant to encourage us when we were seemingly overmatched, and often we, we were. But that's not the point. The point here is that there's something shocking about seeing an Israel plunder in Egypt, a David killing a Goliath, a crucified criminal crushing an empire. This is God's power to shame the strong through what is weak. Pause here and consider this marvelous truth. God is reversing the human way, our way, your way, of defining power in this world. It's not defined by quick wit. It's not defined by the size of an army. No, it's defined in the power of the gospel message of Jesus Christ crucified for sinners. Christ, the power of God. Christ, the wisdom of God. Now this is true power in God's eyes. Don't be led astray. Don't be led astray. Believers, our culture's brazen assertion of self is foolishness. It might seem strong in the moment, but it is weakness at the core. God will humble those who claim themselves to be strong in their own eyes. He's done it before. 
and he will do it again. I don't know about you, but this is encouraging news. Or it should be encouraging news for Christians like you, regular old Christians in regular old churches. Believers, you don't need advanced degrees. You don't need lots of money. You don't need lots of power to find favor with the God of the universe. You don't need to wax eloquent on theology or philosophy or apologetics to know this Christ and know this Christ crucified. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, that's enough. That's enough. Do you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord? Do you believe in your heart that God the Father raised him from the dead? If you do, Christian, take heart. You're wiser than a Plato or a Socrates. You're stronger than a Caesar or a Nero. You're a Christian. You're a Christian. And God chose you in Christ. You, each one of you believers, to shame the wise of this world in your foolishness and to shame the strong in your weakness. you're like me, you're asking yourself still at this point, perhaps, okay, this is great. This is great news, but still, why? Why does God do it this way? Why does he reverse the power of the world in such a strange way to human eyes? Well, verse 28 and 29 explain, as we look further in the passage, it says, God shows what is low and despised in the world even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why so that? Why in order that no human being, that is no flesh, might boast in the presence of God? That's why. Notice three times, not one, two, but three times, the idea of lowliness. Lowliness comes through in this passage. God chose what is low. He chose what is despised. He chose even the nobodies. Like us. And just like in verse 27, he does this to bring to nothing the things that are. That's the who's who of the world. And so, surprisingly, astonishingly, in God's perfect plan, the lowly born, the, the poor, the outcasts, the nobodies will rise up and destroy the lofty. The lowly born will conquer the world. I hope and I trust that you know tonight one who was lowly born, one who was despised by the world. Our Lord Jesus was born in a cattle trough in a backwater town. He was born to a teenage girl, a lowly virgin. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Even those who would be his disciples asked. When they saw him, our Lord Jesus was despised in this world. He was considered worthy of a criminal's death and brought down to nothing. He was crushed for our iniquities. But you know what? Even while that who's who of Jerusalem society was marveling and writing off Jesus for good, they had no idea. They could have no idea about what was coming next. Because you see this one born in a sty 
is the firstborn of all creation, full of grace and truth and power and majesty. He's David's greater son and David's very Lord. And when he rose victoriously on that third day, he proved himself Lord and Master of all. No matter how wise, how strong, no matter what name you wear or where you come from, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess to the victorious and risen Savior, Jesus Christ, Lord and Master of all. The passage continues. There's still a further endgame to God's plan. God was pleased to work salvation in this way so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. At the end of the day, God will prove Himself, He says in His Word here, to be God. Man is not God. Satan is not God. No institution, no state, no human being will boast in God's presence. When Christ returns, and He will return, to judge the living and the dead, you will have nothing in yourselves to offer to Him as pleasing. Be like trying to offer a $1 bill when the meal was $1,000 a plate. It's absurd. The King James version of this passage really nicely, I think, captures this in verse 29. It translates it so that no flesh, no flesh should glory in His presence. I couldn't help but think of the title of a, of a 1959 work by a, a black OPC minister in her own denomination named C. Herbert Oliver involved in the Civil Rights Movement. And he had a book entitled, from this passage, No Flesh Shall Glory. It's a really good work. I encourage you to, to take a look at it if you get the chance. And in this work, he demolishes any racism or pride in one's skin color because all of us come from the same fallen race in Adam. He traces this from the passage. He's 100% correct in this instance. We must guard our hearts from temptations like these. Today, as Christians, temptations to boast in things that we can offer to the world. Many today assert superiority, don't they, based on the color of their skin or their voter registration, their allegiance to the right set of social causes. But Christian, don't be fooled by these. No flesh shall glory in the presence of God. The church, God's kingdom, there's no place for partiality, whether rich or poor, black, white, otherwise, educated, uneducated. No, when all is said and done, when the story of your life is written and you stand before the judgment seat, you will either stand before God glorying in Adam unto eternal shame and eternal death, or glorying in Christ and in Christ alone and His righteousness unto eternal life. That will be your boasting. And that's the whole point this passage points to in the final two verses, our, our final point here. And that is boasting in our union with Christ. We boast as Christians only in our union with Christ. Because of the Father's calling, you, the Apostle, puts us in front. You, Christian, are called to union, communion with Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 9, put it this way before. 
God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And this fellowship, this union between Christ and His church is so intimate. It's so lovely that only the union of marriage can even come close to describing it. Everything that Christ has, all the benefits of Christ are now yours, Christian, based on your union with Him. Verse 29, His wisdom is your wisdom. His righteousness is your righteousness. His sanctification, His cleansing, His holiness is your holiness. His redemption becomes your redemption, believer, when you're united with Him by faith. Just to illustrate this briefly, in the epic poem, uh, the Iliad, the classic, one of the Trojan heroes named Hector, he's about to leave for battle to go out and fight, and his wife Andromache, she comes and clings to him and pleads with him, please, my husband, don't go. You see, she'd already lost her whole family to war. She had lost her father, her mothers, and her brothers, and so she pleads with him, and what does she say to him? She says, Hector, you, Hector, are now my father. You are my mother. You are my brother and my husband. In other words, she's saying to him, you are my everything. Everything. This is how you need to see Christ. Jesus Christ is your everything. He's your creator, your savior, your mediator, your wisdom, your strength, your joy, your hope, your only hope in life and in death. There's nothing in this world that you have or don't have apart from Him. If you have wisdom, praise God. It's the wisdom of Jesus Christ. If you have strength, praise God. It's the strength of Jesus Christ. If you have social position, you have wealth or power, these are all gifts from Jesus Christ to be used for His church, to be used for His glory and not yours. Stop and consider with me, if you would, how this perspective might change your marriages, might change your families, or churches, or even our world. Think about it. If all you have, if all you are is from Him, through Him, and to Him, then will you not stop posting in yourselves? Will you not see, stop seeking your own way with your spouse, with your families. Instead, let's recognize that these, hum oh, sorry, let's recognize the humble contributions of others before we exalt in our own lives, our own conversations, our own ways. This time for boasting in self is past. For Christians, the time for boasting in Christ has come. And praise God that it has. This is why the Apostle proclaims at the end, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Verse 31. If Christ is your everything, he says, then you cannot boast in anything but him. In him alone. If I might paraphrase the Apostle from another famous passage, to boast is Christ. To boast 
is Christ. All your accomplishments, all your relationships, all your prized institutions, your degrees, your toys, they'll crumble when they're tested. They'll fall like dust and be forgotten. But you, in Christ, will not. You cannot. Because you are His and He is yours. Believer, remember your calling in Christ. Take hope in God's good purposes even as you struggle in this world and let us boast in the Lord Jesus alone with whom you will be with forever and ever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are our everything. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, you are our wisdom, our strength, our redemption, our sanctification, our power, Lord. We pray that you would give us your strength by your Spirit as we go into our various vocations this coming week. We pray that we would not rely on our own strength, but cling to your cross and pray to you for wisdom, power, and strength, and boast in your name so that the whole world might know that you are God. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.